So we have uh, a little bit of LA royalty here. I'm, I'm pretty honored to be on the stage with these three gentlemen representing uh, three of the more exciting, more highly valued private companies in town. I think we're close to about $4 billion in private company value on stage, which is uh, another round of applause for that, maybe. Yeah, thank you. And so we're going to spend some time talking about their journey in building their companies, uh, specifically doing so here in LA and, and kind of how that played a role in, in them getting to this point. But before we do any of that, I want to kind of call out the elephant in the room. There was a, a big milestone announced today. Uh, Dan and FabFitFun announced a major financing uh, rumors that they joined the Unicorn Club today. They basically, you know, built a unicorn with less than $5 million of capital to, prior to this round. So uh, how the hell did you do that? Uh, necessity. I think uh, a lot of people say shouldn't, that. Shouldn't uh, we clap or something? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal. <laughs> it's uh, necessity is the mother of all invention, and I think uh, early on uh, people didn't necessarily buy into what we were doing, so we uh, got lean and mean and did a lot of things to uh, generate cash flow to fund our growth, and uh, you know it kept working, and so we kept going with it without raising too much. So we uh, kind of skipped to the end. We're going to go back to the beginning a little bit. And I'll start with you, Scott. Um, I'm going to con kind of conflate. You're the, Scott is the founder of Fair.com. If you haven't checked it out, you absolutely should. It's the easiest and most flexible way to get a car. But he's also you know, a multi-time, long-time LA entrepreneur. And so maybe just go back to the beginning of your journey. What was the, you know, the first uh, business that you founded here in LA that we might know about? And how did you kind of join the ranks of an entrepreneur here in LA? Sure. Um, so first of all, this is a pretty friendly room. I, 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 it's amazing to come to this summit. I think I know everybody here, which is great. Um, but I, we were just talking about it backstage. I, either I'm relentless or stubborn. Uh, I've been focused on the same exact problem for my entire career. So I've, I've been not just three that you've heard of, but I've been at uh, more than a dozen companies all trying to focus on how to make buying and owning a car easier. Um, my first big company here in LA was a company called CarsDirect.com. I was an Idealab CEO, and that company went through a really, really interesting moment in 1999 where we raised a lot of capital. We grew very, very fast, but we were the first company to put an upfront price on a new car on the web. That was a really big idea at the time because I think consumers really felt that they had sort of an information asymmetry. They weren't getting really the, the right information. and so. In a lot of ways, we published the magician's handbook, but that became the real beginning of a shift in terms of how consumers found a car and how dealers went to market. Uh, after that, I ended up founding a company called True Car, which we took public in 2014. Uh, we went a step further. We published what everyone else paid for their car and provided a lot of data transparency. So not only would you get an upfront price, you could see whether or not that price was a good price. And that really leveled the playing field. We had a very interesting business model there when we only got paid if somebody bought a car. And then uh, FAIR is really the latest and I think a culmination of everything that I've been doing. So I've been focused really on the same exact problem. I fundamentally believe that buying a car happens when good things in your life happen. Um, so most of the time you're getting a car when you graduate from school, you start a family, you uh, move to a new city, you get a promotion. So all of these things I think are totally you know, contrary to how awful the traditional car buying and selling experience is. And so the real core of the mission is to make buying and owning a car easier. Uh, that also, I think, means you have to make it less costly. Uh, in today's terms, it means you have to do it on your phone. So that's really what we're doing at, at FAIR. It's sort of a, a car on your phone without a car loan. 
And uh, I'll shift to you, Ian. Uh, you've also been in town, you know, building business here for a long time. Uh, your current business is a little bit uh, older from a you know, years in business perspective. Take us back to the beginning of ZipRecruiter. Uh, mm -hmm. It was 2010, I think, right? Mm -hmm. what, was the, what was the impetus? What was the problem you were trying to solve? You know, what, what did you think ZipRecruiter was going to be then? Yeah. And, and, and you know, in, in a short summary, what is it today? Well, I, I spent my entire career working in the LA startup scene. And one of the things that was true about the startups I was at was they were often too small to have an HR department that could do my recruiting for me. So I was the one who was personally posting the same job to multiple different job sites and then trying to collect the candidates from all these different sites that had a different mechanism of delivering them. And so it was really a problem I had felt acutely over and over again. And I always had this idea, the whole time it was happening, I could build a service. This is exactly what the web was for, where you could push one magic button, your job would go everywhere, and all the candidates from all those different sites would come into one list. That's exactly what we built. Uh, from the day we launched, we were profitable. We actually bootstrapped for the first four and a half years. And it's funny when I look back on that because I thought I was building a lifestyle business and I was very proud of bootstrapping. And what I really did was I think seed the first four years where I could have gotten even more massive faster had I taken money sooner. But. And Daniel, I think you also uh, founded Fatbit Fund in 2010, is that correct? Yeah. And so. Uh, I know the, the business has changed or expanded its scope uh, over that time period. So maybe give us an idea of what the original business was, what the idea was, and kind of how it's evolved to today. Yeah. Uh, so initially, we started it as a newsletter and blog. We were focused on being a media company. It was actually founded by uh, myself and my brother, who's in the audience. He's my co-founder and co-CEO, uh, <laughs> Michael. Uh, hi, Mike. And so. Uh, as a media company, uh, we would get invited to a lot of uh, media events where we'd get celebrity swag bags and sort of thought to ourselves that this was a really, really cool and unique consumer experience where you're being gifted something for yourself that you wouldn't necessarily buy. And one of those experiences for me was getting these headphones that came in uh, my celebrity swag bag. And you know, growing up as a child, it wasn't in our family ethos to necessarily go spend 100 bucks on headphones. But thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be nice if there was a service out there that would curate products for you that you wouldn't necessarily buy for yourself, or you wouldn't know to buy, or you wouldn't know how much you'd enjoy them, and, and sort, of, sort of bring it to people? Now, we can't give away the products for free, or else we'd have no business. But that was the initial impetus that really drove us to launch the boxes. And then, uh, and for those of you that don't know, we initially started as a subscription box, but now we're a much broader lifestyle membership. And uh, you know, we've been able to take that initial sort of kernel of an idea and wedge it and evolve it into something that is the broader lifestyle membership that I mentioned, which includes uh, other opportunities to shop, content, community, uh, you know, creating our own products, uh, and, and many other facets that we're currently working on. And so we were able to take that initial kernel and turn it into our own membership, but also our own platform. Uh, so Ian and Dan, you both touched on it a little bit. I want to talk uh, a bit about venture capital as a tool. And uh, each of these three businesses have, have used that tool differently at different, you know, in different amounts and at different milestones. And so uh, maybe kind of going back to the beginning and, and, and walking us through it quickly, uh, did you seek out venture capital when you first started the business? Did you think it was a, a, you know, a path you were going to be down, uh, hoping to, to walk down? Or um, was it something you deliberately you know, bootstrapped or delayed? And, and Scott, obviously, you raised quite a bit of money day one with a very big vision uh, for FAIR. And so just talk us through the strategy of each of those decisions and, and kind of how you came to that plan. I, I think we spoke to investors, uh, but we always, uh, I, I wouldn't say we, we sought it out, uh, nor were they handing it to us. Uh, 
So um, at, at a certain point, we obviously went to the venture community and reached out and, and raised money, but it wasn't necessarily the, the first thing on our minds. The idea was initially just like, hey, what can we launch that would actually generate some cash flow? And we were building the company out of an agency that we were running at the time, so we were able to fund <coughs> it ourselves uh, with some of our own external financing and money that we'd made through investing in the stock market. Uh, and uh, you know, we sort of got up and running and, and you know, uh, we'd go speak to investors. They're like, oh, we don't really like your idea. We're like, okay, well, we don't really need the, the money either way. So we just kept on going until there was a point in which we're like, shoot, if we don't have this money, we're not going to be able to really capitalize on this opportunity. And that's when we went out to the market. And uh, for those of you that don't know, actually Upfront is one of our lead investors in our first round. So uh, they wrote us a term sheet and uh, we're able to sort of take that uh, initial, you know, it was three and a half million dollars in, in our first round series seed uh, and leverage that to just keep building the business. And Ian, you mentioned being you know, proud of bootstrapping, uh, maybe looking back in hindsight, thinking about that differently. Uh, I guess, how did that force different strategic choices along the way in the business and, and what do you think might have been different? Had you raised capital, uh, you know, what, what would you do differently if you go back or do you think it was the right path? I, you know, uh, when we launched the business, we had no idea how fast we would grow. And so there were VCs that popped in and out. Funny story for you, uh, two and a half years in, my, my dear friend Jeff Swelling told me I should talk to Mark Suster from Upfront Ventures about taking an investment. So I wrote him an email and Mark then responded by inviting me to lunch where he stood me up. And then I said, forget this venture capital community. I'm doing fine without him. So, uh, but you know, we, we, we bootstrapped. That's not reflective of the experience. I'm sure all of you seven would have years with to tell that story for this very moment, <laughs> yeah. and I think it was yeah. a dish. Take that, best Mark. Served. Take that. Uh, so uh, we bootstrapped for the first four and a half years, and I was a veteran of the LA startup scene, and all the previous companies I worked for had been VC-backed, and my experience at VC-backed companies had been, oh, we beat forecast, do more. Uh, no matter what we did, it was mush, grow faster, grow bigger. You didn't set your goals high enough. And so I thought I was going to run this sort of rational startup business. So I was really happy to bootstrap my business, and I was feeling really good about it. Uh, and then there came a point about four years in where we sort of picked our heads up and we said, holy cow, like every company we read about or we talk to, we are already bigger than them and we are growing faster than them. And this thing we'd been doing where we practiced security through obscurity, where we intentionally didn't talk to the VC community and we didn't do a lot of PR and talk to reports because we didn't want anyone to know how well we were doing. We sort of scratched our heads and we said, huh, what would happen if we had, I don't know, $100 million in the bank and we could really pedal to the metal this thing? And eventually our appetite for seeing how big it could get overwhelmed our satisfaction with not having effectively a boss yelling mush. Uh, we ended up picking some great venture capital partners and I've never regretted it. So I am a big fan of taking money for a business, particularly when you have existing momentum and you want to accelerate it. And Scott, you obviously had a little bit different uh, necessity out the gates in terms of access to capital. You guys are, yeah. are buying and putting cars into the market for, for lease, essentially. So um, <coughs> how did you go about putting together the initial financing for your business? How did you think yeah. about how much you needed and when and, and what, what it would allow you to do? Is this the part where I tell my uh, GRP or upfront story? You tell your real yeah. story. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so upfront's an investor in FAIR, um, and GRP has been a long investor in companies that I've been building. Um, I, I, I'm envious of the story about, you know, building a company profitably out of the gate. And I think if you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about what's the right path, 
don't take venture capital if you can actually build a company that does that. I, and that's probably the last thing that people think they'd hear from me. Um, it is a much healthier way to build a company and it is far more enduring to bootstrap your business and to actually have the discipline to run a good company from the beginning. Um, I think that businesses begin to tell you what they need. Um, I happen to be going after a category that is going through such radical transformation, but I've been fundraising in automotive for 20 plus years. There, were a, there was more than a decade where <clears throat> raising money for an auto venture was the last thing on every venture capitalist's mind, and now almost every venture shop has an automotive team of experts. So I think that our category is one where you have to decide whether you're going to be a really interesting, profitable business or whether you're going to be a disruption. And if you're going to be a disruption, you sort of got to go for it. Our business in this particular instance happens to be very capital intensive. We're not a performance-based marketing or a lead generation business. And there are certain things you can do to prove that concept out if it's an ad model versus what we do. Um, and I think that it just turns out that the way our business happens to work is this beautiful combination of debt and equity. I had never raised debt before. I have a partner who's one of the most um, incredible icons in the auto finance and leasing business. His name is George Bauer. He was the CEO of Mercedes Credit Corporation 30 years ago when Mercedes decided to get into vehicle leasing. And the position that Mercedes took at the time was, our customers pay cash for their cars. They don't need a loan. They don't need a lease. And so he was really the father of modern car leasing, became the CEO of BMW Financial Services, was at Tesla when they were starting their lease and, and expansion. So I think that if it wasn't for George, we wouldn't be able to roll into some of these meetings where I'm a good equity fundraiser because I'm selling the future. George is a phenomenal debt fundraiser and we've been able to unlock about $10 of debt for every dollar of equity that we raise. So as big as the fact that we've raised a half a billion dollars of equity, we've unlocked somewhere between three and five billion dollars worth of debt. That is an astonishing amount for an 18 month product in the marketplace. Um, we're growing at this point so quickly that I think every company that begins to perform has to really come to the decision of what are we going to sell and what are we going to give up in exchange for that money. Um, for me, I've had good and bad experiences raising a lot of money and it's not just about dilution. I can accept dilution math it's also about control and as a founder, if you really have a vision for the thing you're doing, you've got to have enough support from your shareholder base to know that you're not going to have a mutiny at the moment you need their support. And so the issue of taking venture capital really I think is a twofold issue. It's not just about dilution. Uh, you know, I'm already at this point um, three years since incorporation date at FAIR and I'm about a 15% shareholder. That's dilution in a very, very rapid amount of time but my issue in this business was really around control and making sure that I control the board and that I control the votes that matter for the things we need to do over the next 18 to 24 months. And so I don't think I would have gotten this level of control had I not had a number of other uh, businesses right in this space. But the fact that we've raised as much money has as much to do with the idea and the disruption as it has to do with anything else. I think that, you know, as these businesses also grow, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very envious of not just the results, but the fact that you do get to really run your business and you haven't had to suffer dilution. If I could have done that, I would have done that. So don't take what I'm saying as like, oh, 
go out and raise a whole shit ton of money because that's the way to do it. That is not the way to do it. I think the discipline of an entrepreneur should be to bootstrap their business and learn how to run that business until it becomes a thing and then understand when you hit the inflection point. And if you really do have an option to go for a disruption and not just make it a business that scales, then bring in money but maintain control at that moment. That's the trick. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk uh, more broadly about the LA ecosystem. You, the three of you gentlemen have built uh, three very different businesses. We have you know, essentially a consumer finance and concierge auto product, a, a B2B uh, recruiting product, and a lifestyle fashion uh, subscription commerce product. So the, the trope that you know, LA is good at one type of business, I think, is, is you know, pretty much uh, out the window based on the, you, what you guys have built here. But I want to maybe flip it on its head and say, what was it about building the company in LA that enabled you guys to have the success you had? Is there anything specific to this market in terms of talent, resources, or anything else uh, that you think played into your success or played into the, the way the business has evolved? Sure, I, I think for us, a lot of it comes down to storytelling DNA. Uh, and so uh, we're not just putting products in the box, but we're telling stories about those products, the founder stories, why those products are important, <laughs> how they can improve your life. and. LA is a city full of storytellers. And so I think that really drives things. And I think on the talent front, uh, there's a lot of good marketing, which also dovetails with this notion of storytelling. And so good marketing often comes down to what stories are you telling in the marketplace? And those two things together have really enabled us to build this machine. Yeah, I mean, I would really second what you just said about marketing, where from an engineering standpoint, we've actually had to go recruit many people from Silicon Valley and or Israel or other places where there's these elite programmers. But when it came to marketers, we've actually found that the people in LA are the best that we could possibly find, and in particular performance marketers, where there just seems to be a wealth of expertise here in market that, ha I mean, it was a key part of our success. My favorite saying about startups is, first they ignore you, then they mock you, then they try to kill you, then they try to buy you. And when we started doing broad-based advertising for ZipRecruiter, everyone mocked us. I couldn't even get people in Northern California to take us seriously at that point because they said every good product has some sort of viral loop and the customers just become because of how great the product is. And I was like, oh, interesting. And it was awesome because that meant we had radio and TV and direct mail, which nobody thinks about, all to ourselves for a really long time took about two years for the rest of the industry to figure out that we were rabbiting the whole category. So, To, to that point, do you have any idea what percentage of the total podcast advertising budget you guys own? <laughs> I, think, I think we built the podcast industry, so a lot of it. Scott, I'm going to ask you a slightly different uh, version of the same question. Uh, you've obviously you know, seen a few different eras in the uh, LA startup ecosystem. That's a nice way of saying you're the most seasoned of us on stage. So give us an idea of, of how things have changed. I think there was the... There was, <laughs> And, that, that's, I'm the oldest one, or I've been right. around. So there, okay. there was, there was, you know, the you were in the, the late '90s. You built True Car starting in '06 or '08. Uh, yeah. And then uh, you started Fair in 2016. Yeah. So how how are those times different in terms of, you know, maturity of the ecosystem, access to talent, access to capital? I guess what stands out to you? How has the ecosystem changed, for better or for worse? Well, I think you've had a number of really high-profile exits in Southern California, and that creates a better angel network and a you know sort of early-stage network. Um, I think, I think LA is a real thing now. I think when we were first getting started, it was very hard to recruit any decent engineers, but the code base has changed so rapidly. I remember you know, when we were building TrueCar, we couldn't get any sort of uh, you know, light front-end developers at all. We had to do our own certification and training where we were bringing people in, letting them come to a certification course for free with the hope that we could nab them. 
Um, today it's a little bit better, but engineering talent is really light. What, what I've always loved about LA is that LA is really the heart of the experience economy and much more of what we're doing online is about the experience for the customer and one of the things that I focused on in all of my companies is really the customer experience and when you're building an automotive you've got such a clear binary option against going to a car dealership that we're, we're clearly building a better experience and to have people that are um, really focused on delightful experiences and using technology to do that the shift to mobile has been I think very helpful in terms of momentum. LA has a lot of capital, um, you know, just fundraising for a long time. It's, it's a little bit different. I think had I not learned how to structure financings through sort of a sort of Silicon Valley approach or a digital approach where there's really a very clear formula for how you're supposed to structure these businesses, entertainment money or LA money tends to be a lot more um, I think um, focused on getting return and a preferred return and the liquidation preferences don't work and there's a little bit more of a control feature. Um, and so if you're able to really bring that digital swagger to somebody who's going to invest from LA then it sort of works because you're running the table on that. Um, I, I'll tell you the things that we really think are unique to LA, our institutions here are the entertainment companies and the fact that you've got so much money going into how to create better visuals, better graphics. It's not just marketing, but better experiences. Um, that's very helpful. It also turns out that for whatever reason, Los Angeles is really the car capital of the world. Um, we are more than any other place in the world what we drive. And we are all driving more car than we should. And this idea that it's going to be a great experience is something that people lean into. So it's not just an early adopter mindset, but in automotive there tends to be this willingness to do things in Los Angeles that just don't necessarily scale to the Midwest or other parts of the country. So it turns out it's not just Cars Direct or KBB or Edmonds or Autobytel. I mean literally everybody is here and most of the car companies have headquarters here as well. So there is a very deep reservoir of automotive talent um, and I think we're starting to sort of plus up a little bit on the engineering side. I think fundraising is still a New York, San Francisco thing for tech companies no matter who you are. Um, but LA is a good way to backfill. And so it's easy to look at any company as successful as each of yours and say, you know, that must have been easy. But I know these journeys are never linear. I know there's always kind of bumps along the way. So I'd love to spend some time talking about uh, what you guys got wrong. What did you think uh, going in that, that proved not to be true? What were some mistakes you made along the way that you can you know, share some learnings from uh, that obviously shaped the business you, you built, but that um, people who were not in the trenches with you along the way may not realize? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one is probably that marital law does not really comport with being an entrepreneur, so don't get married. Um, that's probably the biggest lesson. In <laughs> Not that I have any scar tissue. I know almost everybody in the room, so that's pretty funny. How do I follow that up? I, uh, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, the, I think the thing that happens is uh, we find something that works and we're all good entrepreneurs, so we optimize it. And so for us, uh, we had this phenomena in our business where we thought, oh, uh, if distributing jobs to 50 job boards is good, 100 is better. And so we went to 100. And then we thought, oh, if 100 is good, we can go to 1,000. And what ended up happening is that the number of candidates we were delivering just kept going up, 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 up. And it turned out that there was an inflection point where after I send you your 50th candidate or so, you start to get pissed off. 
And you say like, wow, this is like a job. This is a lot of work to go through all these candidates. And so we had to make a real pivot in how we thought about our business from volume to quality. And that's when we got really deep into machine learning and deep learning and AI and the level of investment required to solve the quality problem was very different than the level of investment required to solve the quantity problem. And I think uh, when I look back on it, we didn't make that pivot fast enough. We allowed ourselves to be proud of the fact that we had this ever inflating number of candidates. So, uh, so for me, I, I think I'm not going to focus on the business question because I think it, the, the parts that I got wrong at least really focused on the personal. And uh, you know, when you're launching a company, you can be very singularly focused on making it successful. Uh, and you know, uh, you lose sight of sort of like your health, exercise, spending time with your family, taking time to read, taking time to think. And I think uh, you know, this last year, I was like rededicating myself to my, my own personal well-being, and that's helped me perform a lot better. And I think the one place that does translate, and I'd say I guess now I can take a business lesson from this, is early on, I did not think that much about culture. And uh, thank God I had, two, uh, you know, I had my brother and another co-founder, Katie Kitchens, uh, who were very, very thoughtful about creating a community within our company and making sure that it felt more like a family. And I think, you know, we're not a family anymore. As you get bigger, you go from family to team sport. And that's something that's an evolution you have to learn from. But early on, you really do have to create a unique culture to get people to buy in. Because uh, what you're doing, you're asking people to sort of suspend their disbelief and say, this is going to be a successful company, despite the fact that they have cockroaches in their office and they run payroll late. And uh, you know, these are things that happen in startups, right? Like we, you know, there were many times where I would literally go from my personal bank account, uh, take out cash, uh, and move it over to our uh, our business bank account because literally you can't transfer within. Uh, it takes 48 hours to transfer, right, on a wire. And I'd look at the bank account and be like, oh shit, we're running out of money, and I'd have to go take out cash and put it in there, and then sometimes payroll would be late. You know, and that that's you know unfortunate, but like we were doing everything at the time, uh, and um, you know because we had people who were really good at the culture stuff and making sure that like you know you sort of offsetting the sort of competitive nature of like you know at least me as an entrepreneur who's like really trying to push and drive. Uh, I think um, you know I would say really really focus on that early on. One of the things I got wrong in almost every company before Fair was we were so focused on hypergrowth because we were a venture-backed business. So as a venture-backed CEO, the number of things you have to do to deliver results are inhuman. Um, there's a very perverse incentive if you're not on top of that cultural dimension to just go through any brick wall. And this is sort of a famous problem at Uber where they grew at all costs. And I think that if I look back at, for example, what I did at Cars Direct or at TrueCar, we were very aggressive companies, but we were culturally aggressive companies. When I ultimately left TrueCar, I had over a dozen direct reports, they were all white guys, and they were all killers. I mean, they were mercenaries to a, to a person. They were the best in the world at what they did, and it was a, you know, it, it was a gladiator pit at the company. And in the very end, when I announced I was going to retire, it was such a fierce vacuum to fill in that. It, I, I would have traded a little bit of, you know, loyalty for kindness. And so starting fair, um, you know, I had true car and, and its ticker was true. And, you know, fair. My therapist thinks I'm working shit out 
in terms of what I do in, in my life, but <laughs> in a lot of ways, FAIR as the name of a company was a really important place where I was at at the time we conceived of the business and it happened to overlap almost perfectly with Me Too. Try building a company called FAIR and do anything unfair to your employees, to your product, to your partners, <laughs> you hear about it, it's a glass house. So we have so overweighted on culture and talking not just about being inclusive, but what we've learned, and this is sort of an amazing positive side effect of Me Too, is right now women in companies like us are so eager for opportunity to demonstrate their capability, and, it, and it's almost as though this whole thing has given us permission to promote women for the first time in very much the same way that young tech companies used to promote men and male-dominated sort of cultures of, of engineers. So rather than be focused on that, when I first started FAIR, I had just read a book called The Athena Doctrine, and I literally said before I started hiring, I'm gonna hire only women. I thought that would be amazing. And I just realized, you know what, I just need to hire great people. And we put such a huge emphasis on hiring great people that from the very beginning, I brought in a psychotherapist, a psychologist who just sat there and her primary goal was to make sure I did not hire jerks. This idea of sort of awesome assholes or brilliant jerks is so part of what I got wrong. And we do not tolerate people who are non-culturally part of the team and supporting one another. This idea that you get to come in and just bully everybody doesn't work at our culture anymore. And I think that this idea now that women have an opportunity is a pretty tremendous thing. I've got two daughters and you can just feel it. I mean, it's oozing out of the company. That's great. So we're almost out of time. I'm going to ask one more quick question for each of you guys. Uh, obviously, tremendous businesses you've built to this point, but obviously you're not done. Uh, quickly, what is the, what's the next act? What is the one thing you guys are excited about or we should all look forward to you from your, your business over the next you know, 6, 12, 18 months? So uh, I always say that the FabFitFund membership uh, five years ago looks nothing like the FabFitFund membership uh, today. Uh, and that's the reason why we've been sort of able to stay ahead of the curve and continue our growth in a way that people wouldn't necessarily expect. Uh, and, you know, uh, we've made inroads in a lot of ways into sort of personalization and customization of the box, uh, into uh, investing in the community, investing in the content, and sort of expanding on those things and making them uh, more sort of one of a kind in nature and experiences. And actually, you know, Brooke Burke happens to be in the audience here. And so I can give you a, a perfect example of us now, uh, you know, uh, and how the companies evolved. Initially, there was sort of this canonical FabFitFun box where everyone pretty much got the same thing. Now, uh, not only do we do hundreds of variations of the box, but it also ties to one of the kind of experiences where we went with Brooke, we partnered with her, we created fitness sliders, we put those fitness sliders in the box, uh, you got them, if you, not everyone, if you chose them, so it's personalized, right, based on what you wanted. And uh, once you got the fitness sliders, you could go online and watch fitness content with Brooke and work out to her. And then people in our community were getting together and meeting up and doing workouts together. And so us tying these things together to really bring together the community and these one-of-a-kind experiences are the types of things that I think will make us special in the long run. And uh, we're just very, very excited to partner up with uh, people like Brooke, uh, a lot of the brands we're working with now uh, and continue to do that and create really novel experiences. Yeah, I marvel at where I am today versus what our ambition was when we started. 
And the thing that gets me most jazzed up is we're playing with technology right now that didn't exist until about two and a half years ago. And the results it generates are bordering on magical. And I don't think anyone in this room enjoys either the process of recruiting or looking for a job. And we are getting to the point we're going to make that so much easier for you, regardless of which side of the marketplace you're on, that I think it's going to be a far less onerous process. And I'm excited about that. I feel like we're making a big change. Uh, there's about 1.5 billion cars on planet Earth. They change hands every year about 10%. So 150 million used cars are sold. Most people don't pay cash for their car. They go out and they go into debt. There's currently over $5 trillion of consumer automotive debt. The majority of it is at greater than 10% interest rates. If we're right, um, this is a real disruption where people aren't going to go into debt to buy a depreciating asset. That is such a huge opportunity. In the US alone, that's 40 million transactions on the used car side on an annual basis. So I think that right now our focus is scale the business as fast as we can. Um, it really does start at things like this. I would invite all of you, literally download the app. If you know anybody who is in the market for a car, don't get a car loan. Get a car on your phone through Fair. It is the coolest thing and we'd love all the feedback. We're right now creating it. Almost everything we do has some kind of a dimension of it's in transition. So if you try it, I would value this crowd's input more than just about anybody. So please, Feel free, I'm Scott at FAIR. Try it, comment, tell us what we can do better, but most importantly, we'd love to have you guys become drivers of cars without getting a car loan and going into debt. How about one more round of applause for these three gentlemen? Thank you.